honestly thought like why am i watching this movie because he was so unlikable and did nothing redeemable and like why does everybody like this guy Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society the olympic games is about to begin this is going to be close Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I don't know. I'm kind of cranky. Uh-oh. Anything I can do to put you in a better mood? Um, I'm cranky because I'm after we recorded our little chat that we're going to air today, I went back and I rewatched them. <laughs> oh, no! oh hold it hold it hold it based on our discussion so i'm when we're done i, I i'm just gonna share one thing oh yeah. oh wow so many things to choose from oh well we will get right into it that's right it's movie club a week which means we're back with film buff fran and this time we've got the double feature on the life of 1972 olympic runner steve prefontaine we watched Without Limits and Prefontaine. Take a listen to our conversation. Fran, welcome back. We've got a double feature on Steve Prefontaine. What do you got for us? Oh, this is a good one. So we did a double feature this time. So we're going to be, you know, discussing the story, um, the true story of Steve Prefontaine, who was an Olympic runner in the 5,000 meter race. And, you know, it's kind of funny because two separate studios decided to make biopics on Steve Prefontaine within about a year of each other. So they were both produced in the late 90s. And one uh, movie is called Prefontaine, and it stars Jared Leto as um, Steve Prefontaine. And, you know, the second movie is called uh, Without Limits, and it stars Billy Crudup as, as Pre. So we'll get into, you know, some of the background of the movies and, you know, what we thought, you know, of the differences, the similarities, you know, who we who we thought was the best pre. And we'll go from there. Well, I was amazed at how different the movies were from each other, mm. even though they told essentially the same story of a man. They went about it very differently. And. Uh, you had two very different performances from Jared Leto and, and Billy Crudup. But it was just it's so interesting to watch them kind of. I watched them not quite back to back, but very within a day of each other. So you just saw the differences and the, just the facts that they put in and took out were were very interesting to me. I did watch them back to back. So I really got a little bit spent. The, the thing that I thought was the most interesting, and I wanted to, to get the feedback from both of you on, is the way they presented the 1972 Olympics. Because mm -hmm. we've talked on the show about Munich a great deal and about the terrorist attacks. And he competed in Munich, so that was not a high point, but a central point of, of both movies. But they really approached it very, very differently. And I think the way they approached it said a lot about how they were presenting 
Steve Prefontaine as a character. Mm. Yeah, well, okay, so wait, which order did you watch them in? Yes, because that's important to know, too. Okay, I watched Prefontaine first, and I had, seen, I had seen Prefontaine a few years ago, so I rewatched it and then watched Without Limits. Okay, I watched them in the reverse order, okay. which is interesting. And I watched them the same way Allison did. I watched okay. Prefontaine first. Okay. Well, I think one thing I noticed was Prefontaine is a Disney movie, and they had access to the ABC footage. Mm. So they really went all in on uh, telling the story of the the hostage crisis situation. And that was a very long chunk of the movie compared to Without Limits. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the, the thing that I didn't notice, and correct me if I'm wrong, they made a big point in Without Limits about him watching the German television because he what he did speak German mm-hmm. and telling the other athletes what the German television was saying. I thought that was a really interesting, cool part of it. That was, and that... And it made like, sense. Exactly. It was like a nice little touch about his character that he was sharing this knowledge. And in Prefontaine, they didn't cover that. And it was a much bigger chunk of the movie. They were in Munich much longer. Mm-hmm. With, what with was really weird, though, was the whole, like, him sleeping on the balcony deal. I mean, was that really true? That was just kind of odd. Because in Prefontaine, they show him, you know, bringing his mattress even out onto the balcony. And it's coincidentally right across the street, supposedly. Or that's how I, I looked at it. From the Israeli athletes uh, where they were staying. So it's almost like he had this bird's eye view of what was going on, you know, with the Israeli athletes. Where in Without Limits, they kind of made it sound like everything, everything seemed like to be through the eyes of Bowerman, his coach. The coach took on this huge role, I felt, in Without Limits. And he was the one who kind of woke him up and and gave him the news about the athletes, you know, perishing. And I thought that was kind of weird, the differences with them, because they showed Pre also sleeping in a regular room, not on a balcony. (laughs) I I know factually that the American team could see Mm. that that was true, that in the Olympic Village, that where the American team was, they could see where the Israeli on. team quarters were, whether that the those particular athletes had that side of the building, mm-hmm. but it was visible from some of the athletes' quarters. And I thought it was very interesting that Coach Bowerman pointed out that he wanted Marines stationed in the barracks of the uh, U.S. Olympians. And I thought that was very foreboding you know, saying, well, we want to keep our athletes safe, you know, so he didn't feel 100%. And safe. and I think that actually happened because yes. Ben and I talked about this because uh, one of the big things that we noticed, he didn't watch Prefontaine with me, but we watched Without Limits together. And so he wanted to look up what actually happened. And so Bill Barman actually asked for that. And apparently one of the Jewish athletes got into their quarters or Bowerman's quarters to be saved. Wow. Whereas, we, so we didn't see that in either movie, but we saw in 
Prefontaine that there was a call to Bowerman and then Bowerman's trying to call the embassy to mm. to get help. That I wasn't able to fact check today, but mm -hmm. that's that's just a little bit different. If I remember when we read the Munich book that that was true. Okay. And mm. I remembered that fact that Bowerman got in touch with the American embassy to get additional protection for it just, the it, American athletes. It just athletes. seems so crazy right now, like with everything going on since then in terms of terrorism across the world, that they didn't stop the Olympics right then and there. Like, I mean, that was a pretty significant, you know, occurrence. I mean, and for them to just, you know, I'm, I'm assuming I don't, I didn't see footage from, you know, real, true, real to real about what happened afterwards. But I mean, for them just to kind of pick up, I guess what they lose a day or two of competition or they didn't lose that much, you know, and then all of a sudden they just kind of were expected to bounce right back you know, and just keep going. Well, I thought what was so interesting was in Prefontaine, that was a huge plot point, mm -hmm. was how much rest time the Finn racer right. was getting, how Pre was kind of carrying on and on and on. And then in Without Limits, he was, uh, the, the Without Limits Prefontaine was a much nicer person. Oh, do you think so? I, I do. So. I thought the prefontaine and prefontaine pre oh. pre pre was much more of a no way. Are you uh, no? Because uh, Billy, the Billy Crudup prefontaine, he was. I, I honestly thought, like, why am I watching this movie? Because he was so unlikable and did nothing redeemable. And like, why does everybody like this guy? Yeah, because yeah, he was a jerk. I didn't fuzzies with Billy Crudup either. Yeah, I mean, Jared Leto would would sign autographs for the kids. <laughs> He'd do other stuff in the community. And he, there were just little moments of conversations where you saw his charm and saw yeah. that, oh, yeah, he's he's got the self-confidence and he's cocky. But it wasn't like 24-7, whereas that's what I got from Billy Crudup. See, that's so funny because... To me, the Jared Leto Prefontaine was just a whiny brat. I wanted to smack him. <laughs> no, I, I felt like he was definitely, like his ego was just humongous. You know, but both, I don't know. I felt, yes. I, I felt like Jared Leto had more more heart than Crudup. I really did. And I don't know, maybe I have a soft spot for Jared Leto, but, you know, I I thought he... He was a more, he felt more human to me. Like Crudup felt more robotic mm -hmm. to me a lot during his performance. And there was a lot of, I didn't know how, how he got so many dates with so many women. Yeah, they really kind of in the without limits, they really portrayed him as a serious lady killer. And I mean, even though it was said that he got around in Prefontaine, it, it wasn't as blatant as it was in the Without Limits. No, and, you know, I wondered about that because Prefontaine had the blessing of the family. Mm. And Bill Bowerman was the one who worked with Warner Brothers on Without Limits. So maybe that's why it was more of the coach's movie. Probably. And they also, I mean, they worked with two different girlfriends, too. Right. 
which was and just then, when I saw when I, when I was watching the second movie, I'm like, wait, where's the other girl? They don't mention right. her they at totally, all. They totally blew the ending in terms of who he was with when he did die, because they in Without Limits, they said he was with Mary, who was indeed his girlfriend at one point. But they had broken up and he was with a girl. Her name was Nancy. And in Prefontaine, they, you know, had him with Nancy at the end, whereas in the other movie, they didn't even bother to mention Nancy at well, all. I think, I think that was because the real Nancy had the contract with Disney uh, for Prefontaine. Mm -hmm. So they probably, the Without Limits producers, I think Warner Brothers purposely left out Nancy because they didn't have her permission. So, and I don't know where I read it, too. It was really interesting. You know, on the cover of the DVD for Prefontaine, it just shows him running. Where on the cover of Without Limits, it shows him, you know, with his girlfriend in like a, almost like a, in an embrace, almost like they're going to kiss. And it's like, you know, what are they trying to portray? Like this is some romantic love affair. You know, it just kind of was an odd choice, I think, for the cover art. Because, you know, it's, you know, but the, but the love story did take a very central role. And, you know, I thought that was very interesting, too, because they did spend time, they did have, you know, Prefontaine in, in the Jared Leto version, you know, spend a lot of time with his girlfriends. But it, it wasn't the main part of the story, where I felt like they gave a lot of, of story time and Without Limits to the girlfriend. And I don't know, I think that made it drag. The one thing that I thought that the that Prefontaine did very well was they gave him a reason to run the way that he did. Yeah. Yes. 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 Definitely. Without limits, I don't think they talked about him wanting to be a front runner, literally, mm -hmm. to run in the front of the pack, to push himself harder than everybody else. But they sort of gave this sort this little blip. This of lame being, story of him running in the woods. Being yeah. chased as a child. Whereas in Prefontaine, they really hit that hard where Jared Leto makes that speech of you're too slow, Pre. You're right. not tall enough, Steve. You're not, you know, where he really felt like he had to prove something. And that made him as a runner make so much more sense. Exactly. Yeah, whereas, I definitely agree. Yeah, whereas in Without Limits, it was very much like, okay, he's very stubborn. He's very motivated to run in a way that his coach doesn't want him to. And I think that goes back to the fact that Prefontaine was with the family and Without Limits was with mm -hmm, the, the coach. coach. The, and the so cool part about... Side, um, you viewed that character. I mean, the, the cool parts of Without Limits were more like the inner workings of how they constructed his races. Like I thought that was really fascinating because they did, they went down to, okay, this lap you have to run this and this lap you have to run this and this is how you shave off time and, you know, the drafting and, you know, all the inner kind of psyche, you know, that goes into preparing for a race. And that was really fascinating. You know, as someone who just started to run myself, you know, it is amazing to see, you know, these champion runners and what it takes to kind of prepare themselves and really get into, you know, how are you going to pull apart? They said it was a, 
a mental game. And it and it really is. When they did reach the, you know, the kind of climax where they were going to run the 5,000 meters at the Munich Games, you know, they said there was 10 guys on the field that easily could have won the race. You know, it was really a, up for grabs because they were all so talented. And it really just depended on how good a race they they ran, you know, what was their strategy and did it work for them that day? Well, and the, the, speaking of the strategy, the strategy that Barman came up with for the Munich race just seemed like it wasn't what Pre was used to at all. He was used mm-hmm. to getting out in front and leading and just then turning on the gas somewhere and and having more in his tank to get done Mm-hmm. Whereas the strategy was, oh, no, hang in the back and draft off people. And then he got like elbowed and jostled around a little bit and couldn't get out. And then I think that probably messed with his head more. So I kind of wonder if changing your strategy at the last minute, much like adding new shoes on the day of race, <laughs> was, 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 a, was an issue. Yeah, we'll never I, know. I mean, with, even with Virens in Prefontaine. You know, when they said, especially since he ran the 10,000 meters prior to that, but then because of the, you know, the unfortunate incident with the Israeli athletes, he got more rest. So were they trying to imply that Verins wasn't going to be as good because he was still recuperating if it really was run the way it was supposed to be? versus the way it happened you know were they trying to kind of take down Virens a notch saying well he wasn't you know he was just going to be too too tired you know but it was interesting how they did that and I mean I think I think the coach did that because I think he truly was nervous because it was such a, a great field of runners that he had to kind of mix things up to really you know run the right race for that particular race which Bowerman did you like better or did you think was more interesting? Oh, I liked the Prefontaine. Definitely. Definitely. Arlie Emmer. And, and uh, Claire wrote in and said she also liked him better. And it was just like Donald Sutherland did not seem to, you know, you know unfortunately, do it for her. I love Donald Sutherland, but all I saw was Donald Sutherland in this role. I didn't see him really kind of crawl into Bill Bowerman and become Bill Bowerman. So it was really hard to watch him and think of him as someone else, you know, and they gave him a lot of just very grandiose, like talks. And, you know, they, they, you know, he did a lot of verbiage in front of the group and, you know, and he seemed very motivational, but I think that the other version, you know, that was played, by um, Arlie Ermes, he really felt very authentic to me. You know, just a hardworking guy. He wanted his players to be the best. You know, he worked at night and day on just the mechanics, which included their footwear, which was kind of really interesting as well, you know, because I'm sure, you know, in the United States, you know, as well as worldwide, I mean, who hasn't owned a pair of Nikes? You know, and of course, you know, to see it in its infancy was really kind of interesting. Yeah, I thought the the way Prefontaine 
dealt with the birth of Nike was probably more realistic. <laughs> that he was this, that Bowerman was this mad scientist with a waffle iron. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Without Limits, Donald Sutherland was this very Phil Jackson-like Zen master. Yeah. And I can't imagine someone who was, who ended up revolutionizing athletic footwear was that calm and peaceful waters like mm. i see him more with the 20 broken waffle irons <laughs> packed up in in the shed and right. the wife screaming at him like you are not doing this again bill right so i i like that aspect of it yeah donald Sutherland. i i, I was like is this President Snow as a coach <laughs> from Hunger Games? It was just a little too cold for me. It, it's funny that you mentioned him as Phil Jackson because that is also exactly what Claire said. Mm. That, she, But she had this feeling that in real life he probably wasn't very Phil Jackson-like. He was probably a crusty guy and, like you said, mad scientist in a way. I have my eccentric way of doing stuff. I don't do recruiting. So, you know, you want to come here, you come here. Um, I also kind of like some of the other cast members, actually, in Without Limits. Um, I liked Jeremy Sisto as Frank Shorter, who was another American, um, you know, runner. And what I thought was kind of interesting was Tom Cruise was an executive producer on this film. And he put his cousin, William Maypother, in a prominent role in the film. Um, he, always shows up in Tom, he always shows up in Tom Cruise films. He does. I mean, he's a good actor. I liked his portrayal, but it was just kind of interesting that, you know, you saw that kind of link there, you know, and I, I don't know. It, it was interesting, too, because what I read up on the parents, you know, in the Without Limits film, you know, they really just showed his mother. You know, and they didn't really show his father at all. Whereas in Prefontaine, you know, there was more, you know, of a, you know, there was more scenes with the parents, you know, especially with them going to the Olympics. He does have a sister and she wasn't shown in either. So I thought he was an only child until I kind of read after the fact. Did either of you know about the connection between he and Frank Shorter before you watched the movies? No, no. Neither did I. I. They were teammates. They were obviously friends. And I also didn't know that Shorter was so involved in the accident. Well, and that's a question I had because in Prefontaine, it makes it look like he was just driving by himself, which kind of didn't make a lot of sense to me in the portrayal because he was at this party that was basically to, you know, thank these runners from Finland from co- for coming to this meet in Oregon. And then he just kind of leaves the party and just, you know, unfortunately crashes his car. Whereas in Without Limits, it was a completely different setting, it looked like to me. And his friend Frank Shorter just had his wisdom teeth out and he promised Frank you know, a ride home from the party. So he gave him the ride. And then unfortunately, after he dropped him off, that was when he had the accident. So I didn't see anything on what really was the case that night. So both stories are partially true. Mm. So the party was to celebrate the dual meet with the Finns. Mm -hmm. 
and he drove Frank Shorter home hmm. and and dropped him off and then after that had the accident. Wow. So it was sort of pieces of both of stories were were right. Happening. And I think this is where the family involvement comes in because I in in reading some stuff I don't think they loved the idea that he had been drinking and he wasn't mm-hmm. wearing a seatbelt. So that was his his blood alcohol limit was way over or his blood alcohol mm-hmm. percentage was way over the limit. And he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And in Without Limits, he looked like he was having a good time. In Prefontaine, it was just like, I'm having some sips and everyone's having a nice, you know, it's a very nice saccharine party here. (laughs) Thank you for the vins. And in Prefontaine, they used the driving as a, a frame. Because at the beginning of the movie, he's all reckless driving and crazy. And then at the end, he's, you know, super responsible. So showing the progression of the character, which felt very put upon the story. And this is Mm. a criticism I have of both movies, which is really hampered by the true story. There's no through line in this man's life that was presented in either movie. Prefontaine created a through line with that frame of the two car rides. Mm -hmm. Like here he is all reckless and crazy and now he's responsible and he's going to train seriously for Montreal and he's going to take responsibility. But then he, that's the tragedy of the story. Mm -hmm. And without limits, didn't try and didn't do that or try and force it. And neither one is accurate. Right, because in reality, he he was uh, had been drinking. He mm-hmm. it was a DUI mm-hmm. that caused the accident, and he had decided to commit to training for Montreal. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think the bigger picture kind of precludes the fact. I don't think that they wanted to make the movie a kind of lesson about drinking and driving, although they very well could have. But I think the whole point of the the film or films is just to show the amazing drive that he had, the amazing um, just determination. I mean, that scene where, you know, he broke his foot or or sprained his foot or, you know, he got stitches in his foot. They did a little more colorful version in Without Limits than they did in Prefontaine, but you know, showing him, you know, running a race, even though his foot was bleeding and he was in, he should have been in obvious pain, you know? So I think that's what they wanted to dwell on. I think they knew they had to, you know, portray his unfortunate end in some way, but yeah, it is really a shame because I, I did not know how he passed away. I figured he was no longer with us when I first watched and I, and I specifically did not look up his story before I watched, because I wanted to kind of just let it, you know, evolve in front of me. So it was really interesting to see that when, you know, it, it did happen. And then I knew it when he was driving the car. I was like, oh, no, this is it. <laughs> Here it comes. You know, what a sad story. How, how he actually cut his foot was... was oh, wait, really put a pin in that. Put a pin in that for a second. Okay. Because okay. uh, <laughs> I want to talk about that, too. But I think maybe part of the problem is the fact that maybe Pre's life didn't have enough of an arc to it 
because it was just cut short. He was cocky and arrogant. I think you saw more of a downfall in Prefontaine where he was just devastated after losing Mm -hmm. in Munich and kind of had to pick up the pieces from that. But I I really don't think there was enough of a, a character arc in his life to make it a, a Disney movie worthy or, you know, a Hollywood studio worthy movie. What was really funny, I thought, though, too, was the the whole um, him against the American Amateur Track Association, because in, I felt like in Prefontaine, it made it sound like he was really at the forefront of the movement of these amateur athletes and, you know, fighting against the system that really, it definitely made it sound like they completely used the athletes and just used them to their own ends. You know, and that was really alluded to again in Without Limits, but it didn't seem like Pre had as much of a um, hands-on lead role in Without Limits. Like he was part of it, but it seemed like he was more of a grassroots organizer in Prefontaine. And I don't know what was closer to the truth. I was looking into it. It made it sound like more like the Prefontaine version was a little bit more accurate. But um, I, I really do like the fact that he kind of became a champion of rights of all amateur athletes, not just himself. Like he kind of grew there, you know, out of his experiences. So the Amateur Athletic Union was the organization that represented Olympic athletes in the U.S. at the time. And historically, he was one of the forerunners and of getting the reforms done that gave much more power to the athletes. So that was much more accurately portrayed in Prefontaine. Yeah, without limits, they mention it. They sort of brush over it, but it wasn't... I mean, they called the guy who ran the track association kind of a jerk... And they showed him not behaving kindly to them, but they didn't really go into the detail that I thought that was more interesting, actually, you know, in part in Prefontaine. It was so interesting. Yeah, I was I was going to say in Without Limits, it just seemed like he was complaining and grousing and, oh, oh, we can only afford to have hot dogs for breakfast. Great. But the interesting part to me was that in Without Limits, it was the AAU and in Prefontaine, it was a totally made-up yes. organization called the Amateur Track Union. Right. And but but his but Prefontaine's work really was kind of the forefront of that change that created the USOC, as we know, uh, mm-hmm. the U.S. Olympic Committee, and gave athletes a voice. But we really saw how how much American athletes suffered in amateurism compared to other countries that were, you know, their, their athletes were quote unquote amateurs with government jobs, but they could pretty much train kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Which is probably why in Prefontaine they had to make up an organization because they were concerned with getting sued. Whereas Mm -hmm. in without limits, because it's such a one scene mm-hmm. and one discussion event, they could actually mention the AAU by name and then just kind of gloss over it. Mm-hmm. But the athletes of that era 
the 72, 76 athletes are the ones that really made the difference to getting those changes made moving forward. And I mean, it's very interesting that, you know, Prefontaine was offered, um, I think in both movies, they said the number was $200,000 by some organization to actually turn pro and forego his Olympic eligibility for Montreal. And I mean, $200,000 in 74, I mean, that was a decent amount of money. I mean, that was a lot of money to turn down, you know, and I guess that also, you know, would show his, you know, commitment and saying, no, I want to be the best, you know, I want to go after this, you know, this dream that I had, you know, so I'm going to forgo that. Right. And the athletes then, you know, they were saying they get a $3 per diem. Now they can train at the USOP training centers where there are doctors and nutritionists and the food's provided and the housing is provided. And Nike and all the different companies can provide them with equipment and they can still retain their eligibility Hmm. for the Olympics. Um, And that was true even in the 1980s prior to the dream team with the big change. And we've talked about this a million times on the show. Being an athlete is very expensive. Mm -hmm. And he, and I think both movies did a good job with the extent of, He's living in a trailer. He's kind right. of the the, the he's way on food they, stamps. Right. He's on food stamps. He, he's working at a bar, you know. That these, that these kids had in in those days. Mm-hmm. And what they you know, once you weren't a college athlete anymore, or even as a college athlete, it was not everybody else was making money off of you. Mm-hmm. Right. Except you. Right. <laughs> it was a really touching story. You know, I felt, you know, and the fact that he went to Munich and didn't place in the top three, that kind of stunned me because I figured, oh, well, you know, if Viren's going to beat him, you know, then at least he'll place and he'll get a medal, you know, and for him to go that far. And, you know, it's interesting because in the, in the without limits, they, they really made it sound like, you know, he did absolutely nothing wrong. You know, he just ran the race he ran and the result is the result, you know, and he should be proud of the race he ran. And it it just was really, you know, it it was kind of such a, you know, disappointment as I was watching it. So I'm like, oh, shoot, he doesn't he doesn't get his medal. You know, he said he was going to go to the Olympics. He said he was going to go to Germany, you know, and he said he was going to become that Olympic hero. And he fell short of his dream. You know, so that was really poignant, I felt. All right, final thoughts. Okay, so who's your favorite prey? Jared Leto. Jared Leto, no question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Billy Crudup. You know what? I, I, I don't know. The, the without limits, I hate to say it, it just seemed, it seemed slow-paced, like too slow-paced. It seemed too a lot of it was too much with the coach and him versus the story. Like it seemed to just stall for me in certain parts, you know, as a movie, you know, just looking at it as a, as a source of entertainment, you know, where Prefontaine pretty much chugged right along, you know, and, you know, yeah, it had that Disney kind of feel where everybody's good looking and perfect and perky and, you know, whatever. But I, I also like the, 
the secondary actors, you know, in both movies, actually, you know, I like the camaraderies that they portrayed. And I don't know if I watched Without Limits first, if I would have felt differently. And I won't know, you know, watching Prefontaine first, you know, and having that feel for the story and then watching the second one. And, and Prefontaine kind of was more like a pseudo documentary because it had folks that were portrayed by actors in the story kind of telling the story to us. And even Pre was in it at some points telling, you know, bits and sound bites. And, you know, the Without Limits didn't really have that kind of like very touching kind of close feel of the, of the people, you know, it just was, it, it didn't seem more documentarian. It just felt more bland to me. Right. Cause you know, that one started off with Barman narrating at the beginning and he didn't come back enough to narrate. He came back to give his platitudes, but we didn't have much of a through line on narration. And, mm -hmm. and I agree. And without limits was a longer movie than Prefontaine yes. as well. Too and long. it just, too long. and it, it, for me, yeah, the two, okay, you got some Disney shine added to Prefontaine and stuff is made a little nicer versus uh, a, a little more gritty and maybe more realistic portrayal. I, I'm not sure. I, I just... Well, you know what I really enjoyed in the first movie in Prefontaine was the, the meat, I forget which one it was, where he put on the Stop Pre t-shirt. I oh, thought yeah. that was a really cute moment where, you know, there were people that really didn't want to see him succeed. So they had this whole part of the stadium, which had these stop pre white t-shirts on. And then when he eventually wins the race, you know, he gets, he grabs a t-shirt or somebody gives him one of the stop pre t-shirts and he wears it around the, the track kind of as a, sorry guys, you know, you're not going to stop me kind of moment. And, and I thought that was really neat, you know, and they showed more of the adulation of him. And, you know, there's people even still today, they say, that just there's this aura about his, you know, his story and the accomplishments that he made. And some of his records, I believe, are still unbroken. And they run a, um, a race every year in his honor. Unfortunately, this year, I believe because of COVID, it's not going to be run. But, you know, I, I've never been to Oregon where he grew up or where he attended the University of Oregon. But, you know, I have a feeling that his presence is still felt, you know, in that area as a hero. Yeah. It, you know, I was reading uh, an article in Runner's World mm -hmm. and it was about uh, the author was going to the Prefontaine Classic. And he, or the, there's also a 10K. And it's, yes, I read that article myself. Oh my, yeah. So and they he went to the grave and people will still leave shoes and medals and yes. things at Prefontaine's grave. It's really interesting how much he just embodies the spirit there. Yeah. And, and it didn't seem like without limits showed that kind of association of pre with the people around him and the fans, you know, and the adulation that he received, you know, they just showed more of this kind of pompous, you know, I'm a winner, you know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Kind and of the audience. Yeah. The crowd is told to cheer. So they're going to cheer. Right. But in Prefontaine, I understood why people loved him a lot more. Correct. Yeah, you felt that kind of charisma 
coming forth where I didn't feel a charisma from from Billy. Sorry, Elsa. <laughs> I, Billy Crudup had the sexier stash. I'll give you his stash. But, but Jared Leto's eyes. Uh, he just whined <laughs> too much for me. Mm. You're slow, free. You're so... And I'm like, <laughs> Billy Crudup and his sexy stash. And he, you know what else he did better? He did the hair thing better. Because actually, mm. Pre did that. That was a <laughs> a quirk of his. And, and he did that sexy little hair flip. <laughs> nice, nice. Oh, well, I that was fun. Like... All right, Fran, what's up next? Well, next for us will be the movie Gold, um, which is actually a foreign film, and it's going to portray the true story of um, how the country of India won its first um, Olympic medal after gaining independence from Britain. So this is London, 1948. So this is exciting. There's gonna it's a it's a uh, Bollywood film. So mm-hmm. we should expect some good music. And Do they dance? I don't know. I don't know. I'm very excited. <laughs> we will find out. Oh, do you think they would do like an opening dance number with mascots? With flames? Millionaire. <laughs> so Fran, thank you so much again. And we're looking forward to watching gold with you. Thank you both. Okay. What? So you rewatched both of these movies today, basically, because we taped this last night. Yeah, and I I watched one after we finished, <laughs> and then one today. So I was up kind of late, which leads to crankiness. And I am sorry, Billy Crudup is still the better prefrontal. Oh no! I I I'm sticking to it and. That's the end of it. All right. In which order did you watch them in this time? Um, the opposite order. Okay. I did watch Fontaine and then Without Limits. Okay. To see if that would change my mind. But I'm sorry, Jared Leto, whiny crybaby in that movie, made me mad and cranky. I'm sorry. Billy I Crudup still think he's sexy. <laughs> the intense eyes of Jared Leto. Oh. Anyway, I just don't see it. <laughs> oh man! Well, thank you, Fran, for coming back on the show. We are excited. I'm well. Are we excited? I'm super excited about our next movie that we picked out to go along with our book being by an Indian author. We are going to watch an Indian movie from uh, Bollywood. And it's called Gold, the Dream that United Our Nation. And you can find it on Amazon Prime and YouTube for sure. And we're going to try to scope out where else we can, where else you can get it. Maybe if you've got a really good library, they have it. Because it's a pretty recent movie. And it is about India's 1948 hockey team. Now, India was like known for its hockey prowess and it won gold at Amsterdam in 1928, LA 1932, and Berlin 1936, but they all had, because it was still a British colony, they had to compete or get their gold underneath the British flag. So 
1947 is when they got their independence from Great Britain. They became their own country. But at the same time, Pakistan split off and became its own country. So members of the hockey team went to two different countries. And now we have this rush to get gold under your own uh, nation's flag. So really excited. I did not even realize that India sent its own team prior to 1948. I didn't realize that. Yeah, you know, that'll be something to look up ahead of time is how that worked when you were a colony, but yet you competed under your own country's name. And I wonder how it is, is like when you look at African colonies and other Southeast Asian colonies, uh, how did that work? So we'll we'll look into that. We'll do a little more research on that. We're doing this uh, movie in November, so uh, be sure to take some time and watch it before then. And if you want more movie talk with us, we are on the latest episode of Running It Back, talking about the movie Cool Runnings, everyone's favorite bobsled movie. Or not. (laughs) You know, last week I promised, I promised I would be more positive. And then our appearance... Our appearance on Running It Back came on, and I'm like, oh, my God, I am so cranky. What is wrong with me? <laughs> well, you can hear. You don't have the Oreos. Oh, there, there you go. <laughs> well, you can listen to Cranky Allison on Running It Back on Apple. Po- you can find it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. I hope much fun for everyone to listen to as it was for us to do with them. <laughs> we know. had a great we had a lot of fun it, uh, yeah it was fun well. and that that movie has its qualities it does so if you are a fan of cool runnings be sure to check it out um so we are excited about this we have put together our book and movie club choices for 2021 we'll announce them in september so keep an eye on our socials at flame alive pod In 2021, we're also going to focus all of the history episodes that we do throughout the year on one Olympics, and we want you to choose that for us. We're we're putting up a poll. This will be in our Facebook group, and the choices will be Atlanta 1996 because it is the 25th anniversary. My God. Uh, Yeah, right? Wow. (laughs) Um. Athens, 1896, because it'll be the 125th anniversary of that. And then on the winter side, we're uh, looking at either Cortina, which was 1956, or Torino, 2006. So Because we're going back to Italy. Yeah, soon. For, uh, I know, for the Winter Olympics. So we're going we're gonna to do one of the four. Yes. And, and we want people to have an opinion. Yes. Tell us which one of the four you'd like to celebrate. They're all milestone anniversaries. Milano Cortina has a lot to do to celebrate next year because they've got two games that they can celebrate. Right. And just the whole we're bringing the Winter Olympics back to Italy again. And what can we do about that? And let's hoping we can all actually be with people. (laughs) Right. Right. So, yes, choose one of the four. Uh, we'll have the poll up on our Facebook group. Or if, you, if you're if you not on Facebook and you want to have an opinion and uh, let us know, email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Well, let's go see what's up in, with our team. Keep the flame alive. Welcome to Shuklistan. I think I need to get a costume. 
for that. Yeah. What, what if you got like filters? No. Oh. <laughs> I want like a um. What's the word I'm looking for? Help me. You know. Do you need a headdress no, with no, the no. ribbons on it so no. you can take Shush. the ribbons? There's a word that I'm trying to think of. When they talk about like a certain kind of dances or a certain kind of costume or a certain ethnic folk. No. no. Forget it. Megan Duhamel and Eric Radford are back on the ice again. You can see him practice on uh, Instagram. That's they, exciting. They posted a death spiral and it was looking mighty pretty. Yeah, they have not been. So between Megan's maternity leave and then obviously coronavirus, they have not been on the ice together for many, many months. And it was so nice to see them skating together again. Very, very cool. And then our bobsledder, Lauren Gibbs, is doing the Classroom Champions Program, which connects uh, kindergarten through eighth grade children with athletes for educational and mentoring experiences. And a lot of our Shutlasanis have been involved in this. Yes. Nice. Yes. It's, and uh, and Emily Cook, our aerial skier, is, is one of the managers of the program. Right. And Charlie White was involved with this mm-hmm. very early. He was involved in the development of it. So, yeah, it's quite a program. Uh, Let's move on to our Tokyo 2020 news. Japan is talking about making it easier for the Olympic athletes to get into the country next year because of the coronavirus outbreak. They've got they've had a a lot of travel restrictions on who can get into Japan. So now uh, they're discussing this at a panel that will be set up in September, according to the Japan Times. And they'll have officials from the central and Tokyo metropolitan governments and the Tokyo organizing committee to try to figure out who they can let in. Because right now, Japan denies entry to people from about 150 countries and regions to keep coronavirus at bay. So they're going to figure out how they can let everybody who needs to come in, come in if the coronavirus problem is still a, a big issue in 2021. Yeah, this will be interesting to watch because it's such a fast-moving situation. Mm-hmm. And as we've talked about before, the IOC is a titanic to try and turn. So for them to be very nimble with this issue, I mean, I realize this is Japan making these decisions, but obviously they're working with the IOC, is incredible because anything they decide in September by October could be out the window because the situation is changing so rapidly. Right, right. So I'm, so I'm sure glad they're thinking about this early so they can come up with all the different contingencies. So it's not, you know, uh, June and, oh, wait, you know, people from this country can't come in and compete. Right, right. We'll see. We'll see what they do and how many plans they come up with. So it's just another thing on their list of their massive list of stuff to do. <laughs> I think their list is longer than ours. (laughs) Speaking of not being able to get into Japan, there is a Japanese couple who has been on their honeymoon for um, five months. And they've been they they were doing a around the world trip for their honeymoon. And they've been stranded for five months in Cape Verde, which is off the coast of West Africa. And uh, this is a story by Reuters, and the, the couple's name is Rukia and Ayumi Katakooka, 
And yeah, they've been they've been stuck in Cape Verde. But when the Olympic Committee in Cape Verde found out they were there, they said, why don't you be ambassadors for us? And now they're going to be ambassadors for the Olympic team. It's brilliant because now, obviously, this couple knows Japan very well. And now they've spent so many months in Cape Verde. They've become very familiar with that country and their culture. So it's a, a wonderful outcome to this really horrible situation that these nice connections have been made. And then the Olympics being an additional connection for the, these, this really ordinary Japanese couple to spread that Olympism that we kind of talk about and that, that global connection. So this yeah. is a nice happy story Yes, in my cranky week. <laughs> Another happy story. Another happy story. So excited about this. Team GB has paired up with Peppa Pig. To support- I'm going to try not to snort. <laughs> so they are going to have the big inspiration for Little Piggies campaign to encourage families to celebrate the Tokyo Olympics. And this is from Nick Alive uh, at blogspot.com. It's the uh, Nickelodeon news. So there's going to be a lot of licensed toys and accessories that you can purchase, but there's also going to be uh, branded content on their digital channels and they'll have a calendar of interactive activities with Peppa Pig. She's Peppa's going to have her own team B team GB kit at various events across the country. Can you imagine showing up to an event and Peppa's there in her team GB uniform? Can we go? <laughs> will, they, will they let us into to great britain yet i am with you so her campaign is i am team gb so be on the lookout for that if you find stuff that if you see peppa out and about in her kit or if you find merchandise take pictures and let and, and send them to us because we'd love to see this in person this is going to be fantastic i know it's going to be fantastic because i have my um Lego people that you had sent me from London 2012 and I love them and they are so fantastic and they've made lots of appearances on our um, Instagram account (laughs) and somehow Team GB and their toy tie-ins are always so well done so I'm excited about Peppa Pig gonna be good interesting article from the Japan Times on the subject of protests and rule 50 at the olympics the uh, japan times has reported uh results of a survey by the australian olympic committee's athletes commission that says more than 80 percent of their athletes don't agree with podium protests at the olympics this shocked me because i think of australia in many ways analogous to United States in its very independent spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, it is a land of immigrants. It is a bit of a wild West in that same way that the United States and Australia kind of developed. Yeah. There's kind of a brashness. Yes. And I I mean that in a wonderful way, this, this fierce love of, of country in Australia as well. So I would have thought that, they would have been very supportive of this, but it's like that 
British strain, that Commonwealth strain of you don't insult the queen comes in. Mm. That's something about you respect the authority of the podium and you don't make a protest. But in the most famous protest in Olympic history in 1968, the third member of that podium, Peter Norman, was Australian who wore the pin that supported Carlos and Smith. Right. So that's why I found this just incredibly fascinating that it would be so heavily against. Yeah, it's fascinating. And and it's also interesting in the grand scheme of how do they come to an agreement of something? Because I think you hear, at least here in, in the U.S., we hear a lot of the American's voice. And I'm sure Americans as a people are very good at drowning out other voices just because, you know, this is what we want. Let's let's make it happen. And that's kind of what we do. We uh, but uh, hearing that another pretty major country, especially in the summer games, is not a fan of that idea makes it a. Uh, it really shows how sticky the situation is. And also, you know, we, we joke a lot about John Coates, but he is a very powerful voice in the IOC. Mm -hmm. And if his athletes are saying, this is what we want, how hard is he going to be pushing for those athletes? In addition to, we know the IOC is in general, not a fan of podium protests. So now you've got this other dynamic going on saying the most powerful members of the IOC, Coates is not going to lose the support of his own athletes yeah. by supporting what the IOC probably wants to do anyway. So I think the dynamics of this moving forward are going to be really sticky and incredibly touchy and, I'm glad I don't have to make the decision. Right. And and you got to give it cre give credit to the the commission and and the athletes commission and the people who are working on it and and trying to foster those conversations and make sure that everybody's voice is heard. So more power to you. I I feel like they're doing a good job in terms of that. I feel like everyone is taking the different opinions very seriously. Yes. The athletes are being heard. The IOC is being heard. The different NGBs and, and NOCs. I, I really feel like when they're discussing this, everyone is being very respectful of one another, which is amazing because, you know, we're in the United States right now and that's not happening much. No, and that's not something that's typical of Olympic history either. Right. You know, especially when, when we go back to our movies and you saw how difficult of a time that uh, the athletes had with the amateur athletic union here in the United States and the barriers of amateurism. So, I mean, just the fact that now athletes are really being seriously heard. Hope, I hope I'm going to knock on wood for that one, but it, it does seem like there is a shift into, Oh, Hey, all of this exists because the athletes are willing to, to compete. And you know, I'm always getting mad when it takes away from the athletes. So, yep. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. There you go. 
and also on on from Paralympic news, uh, inside the games reports that athletes have been invited to cons- consultations on protests for the Paralympic games as well. So the uh, International Paralympic Committee Athletes Council has launched an online portal for para athletes to take part in conversations about understanding how different para-athletes can express their views and what will be appropriate and kind of tie in with the Paralympic movement's values and principles. So that is interesting as well, that they're having these discussions. And and I'm curious to see what athletes in the, the Paralympic movement also feel. I wish I spoke another language so I could get Grace Hunt's job of translating so I can be in the room where it happens. (laughs) But let's be honest, nobody would give me that job after they met me for like 15 minutes. (laughs) Who am I kidding? Well, and let's end on a happier note, I think. Or at least it's a note because Inside the Games has reported that work has begun on restoring the organ at Notre Dame Cathedral so that it's ready in time for Paris 2024. That's going to be impressive. Oh, do you think they could play the fanfare (gasps) on the organ? (sighs) Do you think they would do that? I mean, it is a Catholic cathedral, so I don't know if they would play secular music, but I hope they Can you imagine? I mean, the thing's got, that organ has 8,000 pipes alone and uh, 100, if, if, to get music geeky on you, 8,000 pipes, 109 stop knobs and five keyboards. I don't even know what half those words mean, but I know it would just be the coolest thing ever. Oh, my gosh. That's just an enormous organ to play. I, I cannot you remember imagine. in the opening ceremonies in 1984 where they had all the pianists playing Rhapsody. And yes. All the same. It would be like that, but French. Fantastique. Oh. That is... Good news. Oh, it should be done on time. Uh, that's, I, I mean, just the enormous amount of work when you, when you think, oh. oh, it's 2020 and it'll be ready for 2024. But that that's a lot of work to do to uh, repair and uh, clean up what's happened to the organ. It's not that badly damaged, but uh, there's been some soot damage to it. So Right. And I would think the fire did infrastructure damage underneath it yeah probably so secured and right you can't hold up that much pipe (laughs) don't challenge some people on that (laughs) we'll bring the weightlifters back in and have them hold up the pipes all right well on that note we will call it a show let us know what you thought about uh prefontaine and without limits Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we will have author David Davis on the show talking about the history of wheelchair basketball. So uh, be sure to tune in for that. As we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.
Okay, so who's your favorite prey? 